This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswell killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, here we go. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Coming to you live from New York tonight and the famous uh, New Yorker Hotel or Hotel New Yorker on 8th Avenue and 34th Street. And get this, I happen to be uh, uh, perched up here on the 33rd floor, uh, just around the corner from suites 3327 and 3328. Okay, so what does that mean? What is the significance of that? Well, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the, uh, the life and times of the uh, amazing inventor, Nikola Tesla, uh, Tesla lived the last 12 years of his life at the Hotel New Yorker, in rooms uh, 3327 and 3328, and he in fact died there under, some say, rather mysterious circumstances in 1943. And uh, when his uh, nephew arrived on the scene shortly after Tesla's death at the age of 87, uh, he went into the room and found the wall safe had been opened and a number of Tesla's papers pertaining to his uh, what some call the uh, Nikola Tesla death ray, those papers were gone, which, of course, has led many to speculate that Tesla was, in fact, murdered. So just around the corner from that room, and i got to tell you, there is a strange energy uh, walking around the halls uh, at night here. I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I do. I just, sometimes when I'm uh, hanging around the elevators, uh, I feel the sense that I'm being watched. Is it the ghost of Nikola Tesla? I don't know. Uh, having said that, welcome aboard. Hope you'll stay with us for the, uh, for the duration of the show. Now, let me explain something. Uh, sometimes Skype is wonderful, and sometimes Skype uh, can um, have some problems. So if for any reason I start to flit in and out of your reality, not unlike the USS Eldridge, uh, speaking of 1943, um, I have uh, entrusted you to an individual, you're in good hands. Let me put it that way. My uh, my good friend from Zeland Communications, Zeland News Network, Victor Vigiani, is sitting in the air chair tonight back in our Toronto studios. Victor, how are you, my friend? 
Just fine, Richard, and standing by to catch the pieces. <laughs> I hope so, because, uh, well, let's just hope that Skype holds out. For sure. And um, if I do happen to drop off, then, Victor, it's your show. How are you feeling tonight? Just fine, just fine. Quite an honor to, to be here in the big chair and you way off there in the in the fringes. Hope you're having we're gonna, fun. We're going we're gonna to take you out of your, your UFO, UFO box because mm-hmm. we're going to welcome um, uh, a very interesting gentleman who's actually coming to Toronto on uh, November the 16th. He's, um, this is a real rare opportunity. Uh, G. Edward Griffin is going to be in town Friday, November the 16th, and he's presenting a lecture entitled A Second Look at the United Nations, The New World Order. And uh, as the evening progresses, I'll tell you a little bit more, but it's presented by our good friends at Conspiracy Culture, Patrick and Kadena, down on, uh, on Queen Street. And I will be hosting a great uh, honor to be uh, hosting uh, Edward as uh, he delivers this lecture. It's not just a lecture, it's a Q&A, it's a meet and greet. He'll be doing a book signing. And, uh, of course, you all know Edward uh, Griffin from his uh, a monumental work, The Creature from Jekyll Island. The uh, Federal Reserve, a second look at the Federal Reserve, and of course, uh, we're also familiar with his uh, his work in alternative cancer treatments, World Without Cancer, and also the capitalist conspiracy, political activist, lecturer, author, G. Edward Griffin. How are you? Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Richard. I'm very well, and uh, I'm glad your Skype is working. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, very excited to have you coming to uh, to Toronto on uh, on the 16th. And uh, just give us a little more details what what people can expect that evening from you. This 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 lecture you're delivering on the United Nations. Well, that's a good question because I really haven't put it together yet. But that should be difficult to answer in, in a sort of a general way. Um, as you may know, I've been in this uh, business of digging out. Uh, unsavory facts and little-known pieces of history. For a long time, um, I started becoming aware of these things in about 1959, and by 1960, I was in full swing. And my first book was on the United Nations, called The Fearful Master. You mentioned that. And, um, of course, that was very much a part of my life for a few years thereafter. And then I got into these other topics, some of which you mentioned, and uh, strangely enough, uh, there hasn't been enough uh, or a lot of interest in the original theme of the United Nations until recently. And so I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to go back to that topic because I think it's one of the more important ones of them all. And uh, and so I don't know really how I'm going to structure this, but I can tell you uh, that the main theme of my book, The Fearful Master, is that... Uh, the United Nations isn't at all what it appears to be. That's all. That's so true of so many things in our world today. But it's certainly true of the UN. I know back in the 1960s when I was going around telling people that the UN was not our last best hope for peace, like you know we all learned in school, um, I was met with uh, some very uh, uh, chilling opposition because people thought I was attacking you know a great institution, the great concept of international brotherhood and they thought that made me automatically a warmonger and you know all other things but um, and the main the main problem I have with the United Nations is that uh, people don't look at the real UN they look at the mythological UN 
you know, I have to tell you right up front, I have no problem with the concept of world government. Um, if it was the right kind of world government, if it was the kind of a, a system that guaranteed individual rights and protected uh, personal liberties and protected the individual against, uh, you know, the mob, against the majority and all that sort of thing, if it uh, guaranteed people the right to freedom of speech and all the guarantees we used to have in our own federal constitution, uh, that would be fine. Uh, but that's not what's really down there in New York today. It's not that kind of a international brotherhood at all. It's the building of a new world order, as these people like to call it. It's a, it's a world government, true, but it's based on the model of collectivism, which means it's, it's not there to protect the people, uh, but to control the people. The typical... Uh, you know, we used to think in this country that the purpose of our our government was to protect us, to protect our lives, liberty, and our property, as it says in the Declaration of Independence. You know, when in the course of human events, it's time to break with the, with the mother country and then men institute governments to protect their liberties. Well, that was all clear for a long time, but of course in the last hundred years that system has been eroded so that now the pyramids turned around and the government is there not to protect the people but to control the people. And the people no longer tell the government what to do, but the government tells the people what to do. And that's the kind of a, of a system that they are building in New York at the United Nations. It's a, a, build, it's a system of collectivism, and, uh, and if, if, if people really understood it, they wouldn't like it at all. So what I'll be talking about uh, in Toronto is that general theme. I'll be giving plenty of examples and illustrations, and um, I think it... I think it's going to come as a shock to many people who still still are thinking that the UN is a, you know, some kind of an uh, international brotherhood of some kind. Uh, Ed, can we can we discuss a little bit in in, in this hour? And also, I, I want to give uh, people some uh, some details. Uh, first of all, it's happening at Trinity St. Paul's United Church. That's 427 Bloor Street West. That's only a five minute walk from the uh, Spadina subway station. Again, 427 Bloor Street West. That is uh, November the 16th. Doors open at 6. The event starts at 7, ends at 10. So three hours uh, with uh, G. Edward Griffin. Tickets are $25 in advance, 30 at the door if they're available. And it's uh, general admission seating. And you've got a few options in terms of, uh, of, of purchasing tickets. You can go to uh, Conspiracy Culture at uh, 1696 Queen Street East and, and, um, and, and buy them right there. Or you can do it over the phone. 416-916-1696, and uh, uh, the, uh, if you go online, they also have uh, a, a PayPal um, uh, option as well at conspiracyculture.com. So, uh, Ed, the, the United Nations, I mean, this was not the, the first attempt uh, at, at this type of organization. They, we had, of course, the League of Nations, uh, which came out of uh, a World War One? Why did that? Why did that fail? And 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 then uh, and and uh, why did they think that they could do it? You know, differently the next time. Well, the literature on that is pretty clear. Uh, the the people that created the United Nations, as you mentioned, were actively involved in trying to create the, the very same thing at the end of World War One, called the League of Nations. It's the same group, basically. The same uh, New World Order people, they had this long-range view of building the you know, international government based on the model of collectivism way back then. And they, to a large extent, they were, uh, they were instrumental in uh, 
making sure that the war, World War One, was as long and as gruesome as possible. Uh, some of these people uh, here in the United States operating through uh, the various uh, non-profit organizations like the uh, Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace, for example, uh, they actually drafted resolutions uh, to do everything they could with their influence at high levels of in government to keep the war going, not to you know, not to end the war, keep it going. Why? Because they wanted the terror of war and the destruction of war to be on the minds of people, so that when it finally ended, they would be ready, ready to change their culture, change their system, make drastic changes to the American way, so that we wouldn't have to go through war again. So they wanted to use the terror of war as as a like a battering ram. Uh, against the consciousness of the American people, so they would be so afraid of more war that they would accept almost anything uh, as long as it was sold as a means of preventing another war. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically what happened, uh, what they tried to make happen, but uh, when it was all over, the, the American people still weren't buying it. And so there wasn't uh, all the politicians or the major politicians were for it, but the the folks back home weren't buying it. Said, no, we don't want to surrender our sovereignty. We don't want to let other nations of the world tell us what to do and what is right and what is wrong and to levy taxes on us and all that sort of thing. No. So um, the 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 planners uh, were very disillusioned by that. They thought they really had it made. And so they resolved right away after that, when, when the League of Nations fell through because of basically a lack of, of popular support at the grassroots level. They started right to work again. They said, okay, we've got to do this again, and we'll just keep doing it again and again until people are so fed up with war that they'll finally give up their sovereignty and give up their cherished uh, way of life, and they'll say it's, it'll be worth it. And um, this is all pretty well documented. And... Um, so anyway, to answer your question, the, the American people uh, were hit with the battering ram of World War One, but apparently it wasn't enough to to knock knock down the structures of our of our traditions. They still were standing, and so they failed to get uh, you, the United States to participate in that. All right, uh, uh, Ed, stay where you you are if you could. Victor Vigiani, live in studio in Toronto. I'm on the horn, down the pipe from uh, New York City, live from the uh, New Yorker Hotel as we talk about the United Nations and one world government. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Hey, welcome back. I'm live from Hotel New York, 8th Avenue and 34th Street in New York. And Victor, 
writer, documentary filmmaker, uh, many successful titles to his credit. He's listed on the Who's Who in America. He's uh, well-known, of course, because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that, can, uh, that we can all understand. He's dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology, ancient Earth history, the Federal Reserve System, international banking, terrorism, international subversion, the history of taxation, uh, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy, and on and on it goes. And he will be in Toronto for an exclusive engagement Friday, November the 16th, uh, delivering a lecture, The New World Order, A Second Look at the United Nations, and that's what we're talking about here. And uh, let me throw it over to my good friend Victor Vigiani back in Toronto. Thanks, Richard. Um, welcome again, Ed. I'm, I'm really, um, uh, as I'm listening to what Richard just described and to what you said uh, just before the break, it, there seems to be implicit in just about everything that, you, uh, that you're saying and what I've read so far on your website that there's a litany of a sort of a facade hiding a certain kind of reality behind virtually everything that we hear. You know, for example, there's 9-11 as to what the government is telling us, and then there's what some people considered an alternative answer. Uh, the JFK assassination, you know, one story, then another. Um, are we alone? The government says no, and other people say yes. You seem to be providing um, like, a, like a several alternatives to just about everything that we know um, that's, that's true historically. Um, who's the gatekeeper of all of this stuff? Well, that's a good question, and I have to start off by saying I don't really know if there is a, uh, a one entity or a sort of a, an alliance of um, entities or groupings of people. I suspect it's more the latter. But uh, my own research uh, leads me to uh, focus on one, one particular group, which is more dominant in the Western world. And interestingly enough, it's a group that doesn't have a name. It was formed by Cecil Rhodes. And as I think everybody knows who he was, one of the wealthiest men in the world, dominated the, uh, the diamond mines and, and the gold fields of South Africa. And, uh, but what they don't know is that he created a secret society. And uh, we know a lot about that secret society today because uh, it's, it was written, uh, the whole history of it was written by a rather well-known historian by the name of Professor Carol Quigley. He used to be a professor at Georgetown University. He wrote a couple of books on it, big thick books, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment were two of his monumental works in which he detailed the origin of this secret society and what they accomplished and still continue to accomplish. One of the startling revelations is that this secret society still exists. When, when Cecil Rhodes died, uh, he devoted his entire fortune to the funding of this uh, secret society. And um, we, we know a lot about it because of, of what Professor Quigley wrote in his books and also from uh, Rhodes himself, who wrote extensively on it, and also uh, from a, a fellow by the name of William Stead, who was, or Steed, I never did find out how you pronounce that, S-T-E-A-D, but uh, he was the executor of uh, Cecil Rhodes' estate. And he wrote a book on all of this. So we, we have very uh, solid sources of information that Cecil Rhodes wanted to create and did, in fact, create a secret society without a name. And he didn't want anybody to talk about it. So he figured if we don't have a name, you can't very well talk about it. And even Quigley himself, when he was writing about it, 
refer to it as the Rhodes Group or the organization. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. Well, we do know that the uh, that Cecil Rhodes consciously built this organization on the or the structural principles established by Adam Weishaupt uh, when he formed the Illuminati. Well, we all have been told that the Illuminati no longer exists. It was at one time very powerful in, in Europe, but that when it was exposed in Bavaria, um, that uh, you know all its members were arrested and the organization was uh, shattered and went out of existence. Some people think it went just went underground and developed elsewhere in other forms. I don't think it's important that we know the answer to that, but we do know that people like Cecil Rhodes either continued it or consciously copied it, because he said he did. <laughs> and one of the things I'm getting to here is that uh, Adam Weishaupt said that the way to control large groups of people, and certainly the way to control the world, is through a structure that he described as rings within rings within rings, meaning that in the center of this uh, conspiratorial group, it's what, what it was, they called it that, uh, there would be just one or two or three people who would dominate, and then they would recruit around them a ring of other uh, members to form another group by a different name, and maybe 12 or 20, and they wouldn't know that there were three, maybe, in the center of that that were running the show. But then that outer group of, let's say, 12 or 20, would then form another organization, a ring around it that might have, you know, several hundred or a thousand, and those people would think they're the whole enchilada without realizing that they were being controlled and directed by, by this inner ring, and so on outward until finally you get out to the large masses of society, like political parties would be formed, and those would be big rings of many, many thousands, if not millions of members, and they wouldn't have the slightest idea that they were being controlled by an inner ring, which was controlled by still one more inner ring, which was controlled by still one more inner ring. Well, that was the rings within rings concept that Adam Weissup uh, created so well, and he wrote about it. You can read Adam Weissup's own words uh, in those papers that were confiscated there in the London Library. And Cecil Rhodes, in his own memoirs, said that he consciously selected that style of structure for his secret society. So um, what he did, and and, uh, this is where Quigley comes into it so well with his historical excellence, he details how the uh, one of the rings, about the third ring out, uh, were, was called the, um, the round tables. They called them round tables. And those in turn uh, created an outer ring around them, which in each of the countries, uh, the former countries of the former British dependency countries, were called um, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And they're still there. You can go to, you know, Canada, you can go to Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, and you can look up in the telephone directory, you know, there's the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's in London, of course. But in the United States, they decided not to use that name because they figured the American people were not interested in royalty. They didn't want the word royal. Uh, It had a negative connotation here. So they changed the name here, and they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's the same outer ring of a round table, which is part of the Cecil Rhodes Secret Society. So now we, we realize that the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, with about 4,200 members, something like that, relatively small organization, actually controls this country. 
uh, they, those people are in the key positions of all of the major power centers of society. They, they control the political parties. They, they, their people are in control of the major channels of communication, the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Turner, you know, um, Murdoch uh, Network. Murdoch is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. You just go down the line, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, it's all there. Every one of the major channels are in the hands of these people on the Council on Foreign Relations, key positions in government, senators, most of the presidents of the United States since uh, Woodrow Wilson have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations or very close to it, or, you know, they're, they're key people. When they appoint people to go uh, to head up cabinet posts like uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, you look at those names, Council on Foreign Relations, high percentage. Well, by that I mean 70% or higher. And uh, Ed, Ed, is the game fixed to the extent that you cannot rise to the position of a president or prime minister or even win the nomination of the Democratic or Republican Party unless you are an affirmed globalist? Uh, I would say that's a, a correct appraisal, yeah, because these people have an agenda. This isn't just uh, like an employment agency <laughs> where they're you know, uh, promoting each other. You don't even get into these circles unless you have an agenda, unless you have an outlook. And that outlook is, as I mentioned before, you've got to favor this new world order. You've got to be a collectivist. You have to think that that's the correct uh, form of society, that the group should be sacrificed. I mean, the, the group is more important than the individual, and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good or the greater number. If you believe that and uh, you can dedicate your life to that principle, then you're okay. Also, you have to be a little bit ruthless, too. If you meet those two tests, uh, you have a good chance of being recruited into this uh, into this network. So anyway, just to finish what I was saying, you asked me who I think the gatekeepers are. In the United States, I'll just summarize this by saying the gatekeepers are definitely members of the Council on Foreign Relations. G. Edward Griffin is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from New York City and our studio in Toronto, Canada. Again, uh, Edward will be in Toronto Friday, November 16th, speaking about the New World Order, a second look at the United Nations. Uh, Edward, why uh, specifically the, the UN? Do they, why have they chosen that organization to be the vehicle to usher in the New World Order? Given that, uh, at least on the surface, uh, it, it's quite, it seems quite clear that Nobody within, none of the member states can agree on anything, let alone, uh, you know, how to, how to run the world. Well, let's back up and take the first question first. Why did they choose that? They didn't choose it. They created it. It, uh, it, it, was, it wasn't there that they had to look around and say, which one do we want? They created that specifically to their specifications. It was created by collectivists with a globalist point of view. Um, many of the people in you know, in the 19, uh, right after the war, in the 43, 44, 45, when all of this was happening, um, they were uh, closely affiliated with the communist network. In fact, that we had a lot of people in the State Department and the United States uh, who, although they were American citizens, we learned later that they were actually members of the Communist Party. And they were, uh, their real affinity and loyalty was to uh, Mother Russia, even though they were American citizens. We had a lot of those people, and, and, and the ones that drafted the U.N. Charter, people like uh, Alger Hiss, he was very active in that in his department. You look at all those people whose names you see on the staff of, the, uh, of that particular group within the state department that drafted the U.N. Um, Charter, they were, you'd be surprised at the high number of 
members of the Communist Party that were there. But that wasn't all. Uh, there were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And actually, in, in some cases, like Alger Hiss, he was a member of both groups. He was a secret communist agent and also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. But the one common thing, whether they'd be collectivists on the right or collectivists on the left, is that they were collectivists. They wanted this all-powerful government controlled from the top. The General Assembly, though, just uh, it seems to be uh, a free-for-all, and, and, and it's, it's hard to imagine how that organization would, 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 would be able to cultivate enough common ground for them to form a one-world government. Well, I, I don't know that... Um, I'm, I'm a little bit out of my league here to say that, that is, uh, they, they don't worry about it too much. I think it's part of like the show that's put on. Uh, when you look at the uh, the contest here in the United States between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, uh, you think, oh, God, these people really are, are at each other's throats, right? Well, yeah, but it's not on principle. They don't disagree on principle very much. They just disagree on who's going to be king, that's all. And I think when you look at the U.N. General Assembly or even the Security Council, you find that all those these people are – are competing with each other and have a lot of disagreement. They don't disagree on principle. They just disagree on alignment. Which is it going to be the Leninist group or the Rhodesian group? And that's what we're talking about here at the UN. There's two groups there, on the left and on the right. The Rhodesians are considered to be on the right and the Leninists on the left. And they're competing not because they don't want world government. They both agree they do. They're just competing to see who's going to, who's going to control it, which side. So I think if you look at the, the basis of the of the conflict at the UN, you find it's, it's just a, a struggle for power. But on principle, they're all united. Uh, we'll, we'll step away here for a moment. We'll come back with uh, G. Edward Griffin discussing the New World Order, a second look at the United Nations. What I'd like to know is if, if uh, they had hoped that uh, World War I, the war to end all wars, would usher in uh, this, uh, this opportunity to form one world government, uh, are they hoping that... Uh, or are they planning on another major conflict to maybe drive that point home one more time? Is this going to be World War III? Is it going to be some sort of a nuclear showdown with Iran? We'll find out as we continue our conversation with G. Edward Griffin, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network back in the studio. I'm coming at you live from New York, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network, my uh, co-pilot in case 
My Skype connection from New York uh, drops off. G. Edward Griffin on the line from California, coming to Toronto November the 16th to speak about uh, the New World Order in the United Nations. If you go to my website, richardserrett.com, and uh, click on the banner there uh, for the event, that'll take you to uh, a, a page where you can get all the details on how to get tickets and, and uh, the location and so forth. Uh, before I turn it over to uh, Victor Vigiani for a question, let me just follow up on that point I made before the break. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of saber rattling again in terms of, uh, you know, Middle East uh, uh, war possibly with Iran. Uh, is is this again by design? Is this another attempt to uh, uh, to uh, traumatize people with with war and 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 have them more susceptible, more open to the idea of one world government? Ed? Well, I think that's uh, definitely uh, the, that's partly the case, yes. I, I, but I add the word partly because I think there are other motives for the war. I think it has to do with uh, oil, <laughs> has to do with dominance, has to do with uh, the creation of uh, you know um, the American Empire and the expansion of the American Empire. But the uh, I think that the factor that you're discussing is also a very real thing that uh, another war would probably just be more than the world could bear, and they would probably say, we've had it, I don't care, take my freedom, take my home, tell me where to work, give me a place to live, uh, you know, tell me who to marry, what to, who to think, uh, what to think, and who my friends would be. Just do all of that, just no more war. And these people have thought about that, they're master psychologists. So I worry a lot about it because I think it might work. I think that the average person who doesn't have any knowledge of what we're talking about would certainly be easy prey for something like that. So I guess the short answer to your question is that it's yes, but there are there are probably several factors involved uh, with the what looks like a, a looming war ahead, uh, but that certainly is one of the big ones. It's, it's interesting how we are, many of us, so willing to give up liberty for a, a little bit of security. I just remember that, that, that line from Network, Howard Beale, saying, you know, I know the news is bad. Just leave me alone in my living room. Give me my steel-belted tires, and I won't make any fuss. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let me pass it over to my, uh, my uh, co-pilot here, Victor Vigiani. Yeah, I just um, in response to, I guess, to the entire point that uh, Richard just made um, and your response to it, I'd um, I'd just like to sort of throw out two ideas uh, very quickly. Number one, with something as um, nefarious as you're explaining, and it has you know deep roots and sort of a non-belief system, and especially in the North American um, electorate. Uh, number one, how do they how do they keep this kind of stuff under wraps? In other words, uh, why does it not become part of public disclosure or their discourse, uh, and even disclosure? Um, and the second part of the question would be like, how does the Catholic Church fit into all this? Are they sort of an an acquiescent bystander. They're very powerful um, on the planet, wondering how they fit in, too. Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. I really don't know the, the role of the, of the Catholic Church, although I know it's, it's powerful, and, uh, uh, and, and to the great disappointment of a lot of Catholics, the, uh, the Pope has made pronouncements of late indicating that he's all for the New World Order, and he thinks that collectivism is fine and so forth. But uh, beyond that, I, I just don't know. That's not my field. Mm -hmm. But the other question is, uh, oh, I might add that it's not just the Catholic Church. You've got other uh, great religious bodies that seem to be going in that same direction. Of course, yes. But uh, but the other issue is more 
in my in my camp, you might say. Uh, I think they can keep this under wraps for several reasons. First of all, they don't keep it under wraps. It's just that when they talk about it, they, they present it in such a reasonable way, and they use phrases and code words that uh, they don't really uh, describe it the way we do. You know, when we when we talk about controlling the people from the top down, that's really what it is. But they don't say we want to control the people. They say we we just want a more sane society. You know. We, we, yeah, we we want to, we want rational people making rational decisions, and you know by the time they're through describing the same thing, uh, if you're not really listening too carefully, you'll say, yeah, I'll vote for that. <laughs> you know, so first of all, it's not really under wraps if you look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, the part that is not uh, uh, that you wouldn't want uh, if you were on that side, you wouldn't want the people getting alarmed about, for example, the creation of. Uh, the North American Union, which has been going on very rapidly here, the, the merging of the United States, Mexico, and Canada, they just simply don't talk about it publicly. They talk about Edward, it. Edward, let me uh, jump in here quickly. We'll uh, go to a break, come back, and discuss further. Yeah. Ed Griffin on The Conspiracy right. Show. Okay. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. If you've traveled with cruise holidays of Clarkson, you know Joe and Shanetta are the best in the business. So make sure you set aside time next April to join them for a dream cruise from Lisbon to Barcelona with stops in Morocco and the Canary Islands. Crystal Cruises' luxurious Serenity will be your five-star floating resort. Channel the spirit of Bergman and Bogart in Casablanca. Then it's on to the playground of the Canary Islands with lots of music and five-star gourmet food and wine all the way. In Portugal, you'll hear the beautiful and melancholic Fado. In Spain, it's flamenco. And the grand finale, Barcelona, with its stunning architecture by Antonio Gaudí. Cruise Holidays of Clarkson's all-inclusive Canary Islands Classical Tour departs April 7th. Book now. Call 1-866-919-2111. That's 1-866-919-2111. Or visit ClarksonCruises.ca. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. G. Edward Griffin on the line as we continue to discuss the United Nations and the New World Order. And again, Ed, coming to Toronto on Friday, November the 16th. And um, uh, if you go onto the homepage at richardserrett.com, click on the banner ad. That'll that'll uh, take you to a page where you'll get all the details on um, how you can attend. And you don't want to miss out. This is a very rare and exclusive event um, being sponsored by our good friends, uh, Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture. Uh, Victor Vigiani uh, stays with us in studio in, um, in Toronto, and I'm on the line from New York City tonight. Uh, 
Ed, we're hearing a lot, or I'm hearing a lot these days, about something called Agenda 21. Now, what is Agenda 21 exactly? Well, Agenda 21 is, uh, is kind of a, a, a title to a large program that was developed in the United Nations um, based on the proposal that in order to um, preserve the planet, and we're, we're using, and we're back to this environmentalist theme here, Agenda 21, which really means the agenda for the 21st century, was a, was a proposal of how to use the issue of environmentalism and protecting the planet and sustainable development and fighting global warming and increase, increasing food supplies and all of this sort of thing, which is, you know, very appealing. Uh, all, of those, all of those things are appealing and the, people have a strong emotional attachment to them. But the Agenda 21 was a program to use those supposed goals as an excuse for taking away the, uh, the rights of individuals, especially property rights. And uh, they, they make no bones about it. There have been documents, there are thousand-page documents available at the United Nations, and people have written about it, uh, also who are very close to it and who endorse it, by the way. And while, while people weren't looking here in the United States, uh, the Agenda 21 has been slowly been implemented. It's, it's been filtered down, especially to the county levels in almost every county in America, and you walk into the county uh, offices there, and all of the little bureaucrats at the county are all buzzed with Agenda 21. They want to regulate property rights. They want to restrict the number of roads, and they're going to tear out old roads. They're going to they're going to restore the land to its pristine state. They're going to uh, put regulations on the use of water. They're going to put regulations on the use of building, regulations on uh, commerce, all in the name of you know preserving and restoring the environment. And, and people think, oh, well, they just focus on the environment side. Isn't that wonderful? But they don't realize that what's that the other, other side of that coin is that gradually they're taking the property away from the individuals who, who own it. Uh, if, if you can't get to your property because they tore the road out, for example, that property is not much good for you. If you can't uh, put a building on your property, uh, then you don't. You just walk away from it because you have no use for it. You, you don't want to pay taxes on a, on a piece of property you can't put a building on. Or if they're going to say you can't use the water that comes out of your well because that really belongs to the planet or it belongs to the people or whatever, uh, well, what good is a piece of property if you don't have water and so forth? So short of actually... Um, taking the property, what Agenda 21 is involved in is putting so many restrictions and regulations and taxes on property in the name of the environment that uh, they're literally uh, moving people out of the, of the rural areas and out of the suburban areas, which they say they want to do, and get them all into the cities. And uh, the, the excuse is, of course, preserving the environment, but what the real goal is they want people crammed into high-rise structures. They want them on public transportation. They don't want them independent. They don't want them to have independent food and water. They want them dependent on the state for everything. So they, that's really what Agenda 21 is. And the first time I heard that, I thought, no, oh, that, it's not possible. But once I got hold of the documents and I read it in the words of the planners themselves, uh, yeah, then I became convinced. Now, uh, I've uh, been hearing that um, media magnate uh, Ted Turner, for example, has been buying up hundreds of thousands of acres uh, all over the country, 
And uh, is I mean, is this part of Agenda 21? Is he going to to put this in in trust? I guess for uh, as part of this Agenda 21. I don't know about that. Uh, I know that uh, people like Maurice Strong have been buying up a lot of property uh, in Canada and in the United States, but I don't think they really had original plans to uh, turn that over to the to the government. I think they just wanted to exploit the land and maybe. Uh, derive some pretty good profits out of the water that's underneath that land. Now, I, the I do States know that there are one of the few countries that actually uh, 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 protects property rights. I mean, it's part of it. It's in their constitution. So yes. this, I'm gathering, is going to be a pretty tough sell in the U.S. So does the U.N. perceive the United States as perhaps the greatest obstacle, or its citizenry, rather, as the greatest obstacle to implementing this new world order? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the uh, collectivists that dominate the United Nations and the collectivists that dominate the federal government and the collectivists that dominate the state governments and the collectivists who dominate the local governments, including the county governments, see the American people, as, especially if they're landholders, if they're property owners, they see them as the enemy because they have been taught that... Uh, you know, distribution of wealth is the proper thing, that nobody should have more than anybody else. In other words, they're, they're total collectivists. And so they look at people who have saved their money or perhaps inherited their money and they have some property, and they think, that's not right. Now, we've got to get them off of their property. We've got to take that property from them. But that's not very popular. So we've got to find some excuse for doing it that is popular. And that's where Agenda 21 comes So I guess what you're saying is that liberty as it's been described uh, since 1776 in, uh, in the United States. It's really an illusion. Well, yes, to a large extent, I think that's correct. It's, I know when, uh, when I was growing up, I, uh, I had a pretty false view of what the system was like here in, in America. You know, I'm like everybody else. I was, you know, red, white, white and blue, and... and uh, I remember the stories of the founding fathers and the Revolutionary War and the great principles of the Revolution and the, and the principles that were written into the Constitution, and I thought it was still that way. <laughs> and here it was. I, I was growing up in the middle of uh, World War II, and I didn't realize that starting with World War I, they had already knocked a big chunk out of all of that. But they, they left the surface uh, while they were gutting out the inside. They were changing over the real nature of this country, but they left the surface there. They left the flag on top of the flagpole. They still, you know, sang this star-spangled banner, and everybody got that goosebumpy feeling. And they, you know, a lot of patriotism going around. But they didn't realize that. Meanwhile, we were becoming almost exactly like the very regimes we were fighting. We were becoming collectivists in order to fight collectivism. I mean, let's face it, uh, Nazism. Communism are ultimate forms of collectivism. And here we were adopting collectivism here in America in the name of fighting Nazism and communism. And we were becoming just like them. And I didn't realize all that was going on until much, much later. And I think still a lot of people are in that sort of uh, state of denial. Uh, Edward, before the, uh, a lot of these things can be implemented, uh, certainly in terms of the, uh, the American uh, citizenry, they're going to have to be disarmed. How do they plan on doing that? Well, um, <laughs> there, are, there are several approaches to that. The United Nations is now uh, promoting a treaty uh, that will uh, 
and by the way, so is the president of the United States, and he has endorsed that treaty. He said he wants to sign that treaty, and he'll probably just give an executive order, even if it doesn't get approved by the Senate. The treaty would just basically disarm Americans of small arms. It would be against the law to have them, unless you have a permit. And, of course, people who are like maybe you and I might not get a permit because we would be considered as uh, dissidents and dangerous people, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And another way to disarm the American people, and it's underway right now, is if you can't take their guns, uh, just make it impossible for them to get ammunition. <laughs> and uh, so now ammunition is getting very, very hard to obtain. There are a lot of rules and regulations. Not that you can't buy it. It's just that it's getting almost impossible to buy it. You know, so between those two methods of direct uh, uh, illegalization of it and uh, making ammunition uh, uh, very difficult and too expensive to get, that's how they plan to do it. And the the, the military arm of of this um, uh, one world government uh, will will the UN have a a powerful large standing army? Well, ultimately they have to, uh, but. Um, if they're smart, and I think they're very smart, they'll probably uh, just use the existing armies, but they'll be internationalized. You know, when the United States fought uh, in the Korean War, uh, they were really fighting under the United Nations flag. And uh, when we go into uh, uh, military um, confrontations around the world, quite often, if you read the lines in the newspaper, in between the lines at least, you can see, hey, these troops, even though they're American troops or Canadian troops or troops from 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 uh, France they're really under international control they're really already uh, armies of the United Nations and I think that's the probably the way this the wise way for them to do it because if they send in you know the blue helmets and they've got the United Nations emblem painted on the sides of their of their tanks and their helmets that's going to upset people but you know if they bring in American troops you know and they're here to restore order, supposedly, then nobody's so up, quite so upset. Uh, I remember a conversation with uh, Jim Mars several years ago, and um, he he, uh, he told me something that just left me gobsmacked, and that is that uh, during the Korean uh, conflict, uh, the um, of course the joint UN forces uh, were essentially being controlled by a a, a Russian general uh, through at the United Nations headquarters, and that same Russian general was, in fact, also in charge of the North Korean forces. So he was running both sides of that conflict. Is, have you heard that? Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes. I checked, I checked into that at the time. And, uh, yeah, the, up, up until about that time, the United Nations Under Secretary General for Internal and Security Council Affairs, I think it was called, or something very much like that, um, was a long title for basically the... Uh, uh, Secretary of Defense for the UN, and uh, up until about that time, uh, all of those positions have always been held by by Russians or somebody from one of the Iron Curtain countries. There was about twenty of them in a row. Well, I found out that that's because there was one of the agreements that was made uh, when the United Nations Charter was uh, signed. The United States and other countries agreed that in order to entice Russia into the into the arrangement, they had to allow Russia to hold that very important military position. Well, they don't do that anymore, but that's the way it was for the first uh, 20 years or so. To think, though, that, that the same guy was running both sides in the conflict, I mean, that's a pretty sick game. Well, I'm not so sure that he was running 
the North Korean side, but he certainly was uh, in communication with them, and uh, he could certainly let the North Korean generals know in a heartbeat exactly what the uh, American forces were going to do because the American forces had to report to him and get his permission before they could do anything. What's the timeline, do you, do you think, in, in terms of uh, implementing this one-world government? To be perfectly honest with you, I think it's already here. It's not a, it's not a question of will it arrive on February 12th, some year, at noon, they'll ring the bell and say, all right, the new world order is here. They've been building it brick by brick for a long, long time, and every week that goes by is another tier of bricks that are added to it. I think, in all honesty, we have to say we're already substantially in the new world order. It's not complete, but uh, it's, it's getting very close to it. Edward, really appreciate your time tonight. Look forward to uh, meeting you in person Friday, November the 16th, as you deliver uh, your lecture at the United Nations, uh, the New World Order. And again, people can click on the banner out at richardserrett.com, get all the details, and uh, we'll see you on the 16th, Edward. Richard, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Victor, thank you, my friend. I think we, uh, we got through that pretty smoothly absolutely fascinating stuff that uh, we we need to talk more about this this is really something all right you can uh, check uh, upcoming shows past shows everything you need to know about the conspiracy show at richardserrett.com You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Hey, welcome back. We are uh, coming to you live from New York City and the 33rd floor of the, the Hotel New Yorker at 8th Ave and 34th Street, which is in uh, Chelsea, that uh, area of Manhattan. And uh, the significance, uh, the 33rd floor was home uh, for the last 12 years of his life to the great inventor Nikola Tesla. Uh, who died in that hotel in 1943, and uh, I'm staying in a suite just around the corner uh, from rooms three, uh, 3327 and 3328, and uh, there's, a, there's an actual plaque on the door uh, commemorating uh, Tesla. And uh, for many of you who are familiar with Tesla, of course, uh, was really the father of alternating current, got into a, a big battle with uh, Edison, who was promoting his, um, his direct current technology. Of course, we now have alternating current in our homes. So, uh, however, despite that fact, Tesla died penniless and uh, lived out his final days at the New Yorker. When, uh, when his, uh, his nephew arrived on the scene in the uh, hotel, 
uh, hotel room after his uncle had died. His safe had been opened, and reportedly papers, scientific papers he'd been working on uh, in terms of the development that had to do with the development of his death ray. What was the death ray? Was it a laser beam? Was it some sort of a particle accelerator? We're not really sure. Uh, but those papers were gone, and uh, we don't know what happened to them. Were they uh, spirited away, perhaps, for further development at places like Area 51 in Nevada? Well, that's a mystery. We really don't know what goes on at Area 51 in Nevada. Apparent, apparently, neither do uh, many of the presidents of the United States, and we're going to get into that discussion uh, right now. Uh, first, however, let me welcome... Uh, from Zealand News Network, our good friend Victor Vigiani. Hey, Victor, how are you? Just fine, Richard. How are you doing there? I'm well, thank you. Uh, someone recently sent me a, uh, an email. I didn't know about this, mm -hmm. but back in 2005, uh, President Clinton, uh, former President Clinton, was in Hong Kong at some sort of a business meeting, and uh, after the meeting, he sort of opened up the floor to, to, to questions on just about anything, and he actually fielded a question from somebody. Uh, and this is available on YouTube, which it was uncovered largely thanks to our, our guest uh, who's coming up here in a moment. Uh, but he was asked about Area 51, and, and he admitted that he actually investigated trying to find out what was going on there. Did you know about this? Yeah, that was one of the, uh, the stories about the Clinton administration, that there was some sort of investigation about what Area 51 was beneath the surface, and I mean that in a, a double metaphorical way. Uh, which really behind uh, Area 51 in terms of it being or not being a recognized area. Before, I believe, Clinton uh, got into it, uh, it was something that the United States government would not even recognize exist. And then it's sometime after, I think it was the Clinton administration, I could be wrong there, but they did make some sort of a assertion that, in fact, this place did exist, and this is as far as they went on the issue. Now, as far as what's below the ground, that's another story that maybe we can get into later on tonight. Well, let's uh, let's do that. Let's talk about Area 51 and what the various presidents of the United States have known or do know about Area 51 and uh, the possibility that uh, that facility may be uh, used to uh, to house uh, advanced propulsion systems from from UFOs. Have some have theorized perhaps uh, housed uh, alien bodies retrieved from UFO crash sites. As some have theorized, and uh, we're going to uh, get into that conversation right now. Grant Cameron has uh, lectured widely in Canada, Europe, the United States on the Canadian government's early investigations into flying saucers, UFO disclosure politics, and the Rockefeller UFO Initiative, and the presidential UFO connection. In September 2005, he was actually denied access to the United States to lecture on UFOs and why the government has chosen to withhold the truth. At present, Grant is sorting through almost 100 FOIA requests from the Clinton Presidential Library in Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas, related to the UFO-related actions and policies inside the two presidential terms of Bill Clinton. They show that Clinton, the Clinton administration was very interested in the phenomena and actually tried to force out some of the hidden information to the public. Grant Cameron, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Yeah, good, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, and as I, as, I, as I mentioned, that uh, YouTube clip of, uh, of Clinton, uh, that surfaced largely due to your efforts. How did that come about? Uh, I had heard stories that this had taken place, that he had uh, made a comment during the question-answer period, 
And uh, I worked on it for a couple of years, was not able to get anything, and then I contacted Neil Gould, who uh, sort of runs ExoPolitics in Hong Kong, asked him, do you think you can help me out with this? And he said, well, hang on. He said, I got to give him the details. It was a, a banking uh, investment uh, place that he was lecturing. He'd actually lectured there three times. And uh, then he, uh, Neil came back to me a couple of days later, and he said, uh, I, got, I got the video. Um, I'm just going to edit out the, the UFO part, and uh, I can't tell you how I got it. Uh, so that's where it ended. He put, we put it on the Internet, and that video is not public. It has never been released by the – I tried to get it from the Clinton Library. I tried to get it from the Clinton Foundation, and uh, that's the only place you'll see that uh, particular session that he had there, and all you have is the question-answer period. The rest of it is still Neil has it, but uh, it's never been officially released by the Clintons. And, and we uh, we thought about playing the clip on the air, but it's 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 kind of long and rambling. It's up like six minutes, and so I, I thought yeah. it would be just best to get you to summarize what the question was and how he responded. Well, basically, the guy that asked the question, I think he must have been the guy who was running it, or or because he said, "I'll use my position to ask this question." And um, basically, what he said is, uh, "Is there?" Um, a, is, is there secrets that are passed from one president to another, like where is uh, Hoffa's body buried or what happened at Roswell? And uh, Clinton started to laugh, and he started to talk about the fact that, uh, um, you know, they, during the, the 50th anniversary of Roswell, uh, there was all these people that were interested in Roswell, and he actually tried to get the information, and uh, he, he uh, wasn't able to uh, get the answer, and he made this uh, one cryptic remark. He said, "I'm probably not the first. I'm probably not the first president that they've kept in the dark, or that bureaucrats have tried to wait out." So basically, stated that he tried to get the material. He wasn't able to get anything. And then he made this sort of a bizarre reference to the fact that uh, a lot of his people, a lot of the people in his administration, really didn't believe Roswell. They thought it was it was, it was uh, nothing of significance. But a vast majority of them actually believed that there was something going on at a base in Nevada and that they had a UFO or an alien buried in, in Nevada. So he's talking about Area 51. So he stated that he sent someone to Area 51 to uh, get the uh, the answer there and that they found out all they were, do, all they were doing was advanced uh, testing. Now, I've done a, a bunch of work trying to figure out who it was. John Podesta, who was the chief of staff, uh, actually did make a comment that he knew for a fact that nothing was going on at Area 51, uh, we know that James uh, Bilbray, who was a, uh, uh, a Democratic congressman in the area, actually was taken on the base, and he claimed that he had been in every building on the on the base, and that uh, he didn't believe there was any UFOs or uh, extraterrestrials there. But there was a congressional investigator for um, Senator Byrd. Uh, his name was Dick D'Amato. He also. Um, had um, he had top secret clearance and he had subpoena power and he went on the base and his his version of the story was different that um, he basically told for example he told told Stephen Greer he said uh, with my top secret clearance and with my um, ability to subpoena I can't get anywhere on this thing this is uh, the the uh, the varsity team of black programs I can't help you good luck. And so you, you get these varying um, sort of takes on people that went in there to investigate. For example, uh, Bill Bray, who was the, the congressman, actually didn't go in there until 1991. And the, the whole thing broke in uh, 
uh, actually broke before Lazar. Lazar went in, his story broke in spring of 1989. But if you go back, and this is something I don't think anybody knows, but if you go back, there was a, a documentary that back in those days we thought was sort of like the big documentary that was being put on by the government. It was called uh, uh, UFO Cover-Up Live, and it was in October of 1988. This is long before Lazar even went on to Area 51 and then came out to tell the story about the, the flying saucers and uh, the live alien and all this sort of stuff. And in this documentary, which is about six months before that, they show a flow chart of how the cover-up works, and we believe that a lot of this was put in by the government, and Area 51 is on that flow chart. And then in 89, of course, uh, Lazar uh, goes, uh, or late 88, he goes on the base. He comes out, he has the interview with uh, George Knapp, who um, probably is the guy who knows most about Area 51. The story breaks in spring of 1989, and Bill Bray and uh, D'Amato and these people don't get to go on the base until about 1991, 92, 93. So it's three years after and anybody with any sense whatsoever, it was like people up in the hills looking down at the base. It just went viral, the story. So there's no doubt that whatever was there, they quickly moved that material out of there if, if they did have the, the crafts and the bodies. And I think if you take a look at the material that uh, George Knapp has, and particularly one key witness that he has that he actually tracked the guy down, this guy didn't come forward. Now figured if anybody knew what was going on in Area 51, this guy would know. And he tracked this guy down and spent months and months and months trying to get the story out of this guy. And eventually the guy confirmed, yes, it's all for real. It's, uh, they have the, we were back engineering the crafts. And they had an alien, that they, a live alien at the, at the base that they were afraid was going to escape. So George Knapp had, I believe, over, over two dozen witnesses that basically confirmed the story, uh, uh, bits and pieces of Bob Lazar's story that, yes, they do have the crafts there, and they do have the, um, they did have a live alien there. And then if you take a look now, uh, a lot of people, well, most people assume that it's been moved. For example, Stephen Greer claims that it, it, they moved the material to Utah, to a base in Utah, and that the Mormons are actually uh, running the operation there because they are, are able to uh, keep secrets better or something. I'm, I'm not sure what the catch is, but I think most people think that it does make sense. If, if the security is compromised, you're immediately going to move that material. And uh, there's no doubt that when the Czar story broke, that everything was compromised. I mean, it was just uh, a Grand Central Station of people up in the hills trying to see what was going on. And uh, they actually had to take more land away to stop people from getting close to the base. And uh, so that, that's basically the Area 51 story in a, in a wrap-up. But Clinton did, uh, and he admits this on this video, he, he admits that he did send someone to the base that the, a lot of people in his administration believe that there was a craft or a, an alien there. Uh, it's interesting, though, uh, Grant, in the um, in the uh, the clip uh, that the Clinton kind of laughs it off and seems almost embarrassed. Uh, he says, "You know, I I, uh, I I think he says I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed by it now, but it's public, so I have to, I, you know I I have to admit to it. I sent yeah. somebody there, ha ha ha, and." Uh, uh, they didn't find anything, but he doesn't actually name Area 51. It's like he's not—he wasn't even aware that it existed, which is kind of hard to believe. Yeah, well, he—I think he just sort of gets confused as to the, the name of the base because I mean, he—he he would definitely have known uh, Area 51 was going on because there was a major lawsuit going on. There was a bunch of workers there uh, that actually sued the government. And uh, if you go to my website, on my website, I have a document section there. I actually have 360 pages of documents 
that I got from the Clinton administration on Area 51. I think there was about the same number that was, were withheld. And okay, we'll talk about those when we come back. We'll take a quick time out. Grant Cameron, yeah. PresidentialUFO.com, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network and Studio, live from New York, The Conspiracy Show. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM740. If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies... They didn't tell me about it either, and I want to know. I want to know. I want to know. Uh, welcome back. Now, that, that's a clip I had not heard. Uh, Victor Vigiani, what's the origin of that clip? When did, when did President Clinton say that? I'd like to know. You, oh, boy, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, 1995, I believe it was, in Ireland, he was responding uh, to a, I guess, a group of letters that uh, were written by some young people. And one of them, I forget the young boy's name, an Irish, uh, an Irish lad, wrote um, a question to Clinton. And Clinton, at the speech, speaking to literally hundreds of people, came out and said just exactly that, that uh, if, in fact, uh, something did crash in Roswell in 1947, he didn't know about it, but he wanted to know. And it was in response to a question from a young, from a young fellow. So that's, that's become part of history. And it really kind of points to exactly where this man's head was in terms of uh, how he felt about UFOs and, and, and what the kinds of things he was willing to do to actually get at uh, whether or not this, in fact, was true. And one of the things that I'd like Grant to expand upon is I've got an article um, in my memory at Banks, I think it's 1997 by, uh, I believe, in the New York Post by Deborah Oren, indicating that uh, Bill Clinton was just intrigued by UFOs and, and he wanted someone to go to the Justice Department to, to try to find out, so he appointed uh, Webster Hubble. Um, do you want to take over that story, Grant, and lead us through uh, how hard Clinton tried to get at the fact that uh, uh, UFOs were uh, part of history? Okay, well, it's, it's sort of now a well-known fact that Clinton was fascinated with UFOs. He, In fact, uh, Paul Davids, who's a producer, writer in Hollywood, actually met with him this would be going back a couple of years for about five or ten minutes and presented a bunch of Roswell books. And at that point, Clinton said to him, you know, I'm fascinated with this kind of stuff and I'm going to read this. The 97 incident from Deborah Oren is an interesting story. And what it relates to is in 1997, uh, Webster Hubble, who was good friends with Bill Clinton and mostly Hillary Clinton. He'd worked at the Rose Law Firm in Little Rock with uh, Hillary and had come up. He was Assistant Attorney General. And when he came there, this is the beginning of the administration in 93, Clinton said to him, if I put you over there in justice, I want you to get the answer to two questions for me. Number one, are there UFOs? And number two, who killed JFK? And Hubble goes out and he, he goes to NORAD, he, he goes different places, and he said the answers he was getting uh, weren't very good. 
so in his book in 1997, he puts this in his book. It was, his book was called Friends, Friends in High Places, and he relates the fact that, that Clinton uh, gave him this, this instruction uh, of going out and answering these two questions. So you get Clinton trying to get the answer to UFOs. For example, this clip from that you were just talking about in 1995 uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. This is actually in front of 80,000 people where he made this speech. And what had happened was uh, Lawrence Rockefeller had come to the White House and Clinton allowed him to be dealing with uh, Hillary Clinton and with his science advisor. And this negotiation was going back and forth. Rockefeller wanted all the UFO documents disclosed. And uh, so Clinton allowed that to go on. And what came out of that was Rockefeller wanted the Roswell reinvestigated. And uh, they had decided, well, you know, maybe we can't do this. And then he said, okay, if, if you don't want to do this, I can. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a major full-page ad in every major newspaper in the United States asking for disclosure. And they said, well, hang on, hang on. So what happened was the, the Clinton administration was forced to initiate this Roswell study. And what happened was the Roswell study came back in in late 1995, and it basically said, no, it's a mogul balloon, there's nothing to this. So Clinton reads the report. This is what I believe happened. Clinton reads the report. He's furious and because uh, they basically just walked around him. He tried to get this out. And so he goes to Belfast, Northern Ireland, and that's where he says, uh, I got a letter from Ryan, and I tried from the Clinton administration to get that letter from Ryan. They don't know where it is. It's nowhere to be seen. And he said, if you're out there in the audience, here's the answer to your question. Well, as far as I know, a crash, a UFO did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico. But if they did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it, and I want to know. And what that was, the first Roswell report that came out in '95 only mentioned the Mogul balloon. It didn't mention all the eyewitnesses who were talking about alien bodies. So basically he's saying, you didn't talk about the alien bodies I want to know about the alien bodies. Explain to me what what these people are describing. So in 1997, they do a second Roswell report called Roswell's Case Closed. They spend $20 million, whatever they spend on the second study. And in the second one, that's where they come up with this crazy theory about dropping dummies out of planes in 19, 1953, five years after the crash. And that's basically the Air Force coming back to Clinton and saying, you want the answer to the bodies? Here's the answer to the bodies. And he gets they walk around him a second time. The other thing that he did that, that John Podesta talks about is they put out an executive order in 1995 that basically said after 10 years you've got to start declassifying documents, you can't withhold documents, and after 25 years, unless you've got a very good reason, every single document has to come out. And what they figured by doing that is that all the UFO documents would come out with all the declassified documents. There was 800 million pages of documents declassified under Bill Clinton, and the, the UFO documents didn't come out, so he failed in that attempt. But Clinton was doing a lot of stuff, trying to shake stuff loose and trying to get to the bottom of it. And he, even when I put out this latest article, because what has happened now is he, he was a conspiratorial guy. He didn't believe the, the UFO answer. That's why he said to Hubble, I want you to go and get the answer to UFOs. And he also, he was a very big fan of, of uh, President Kennedy. He was had this famous photograph at 16 years old. He promised his mother he was going to Washington. He'd get a, a picture with the president. He gets this picture of him shaking Kennedy's hand shortly before Kennedy was assassinated. Takes the picture back. He becomes sort of famous for this. And so he sees himself as a second Kennedy. So when he says to Hubble, I want you to find out about UFOs, he also says, I want you to find out about the JFK assassination. Who killed JFK? And the latest uh, FOIA that I just got released from the Clinton uh, Library is uh, the FOIA on 
files on the JFK assassination, and they have made uh, uh, public 7,663 pages of documents on the Kennedy assassination. So uh, I haven't seen them. I don't know if anybody's looked at them yet, but they are now available at the Clinton Library. So that was the two things that Clinton wanted, these two conspiracy theories that, that he believed the, that there was, there was an answer to it and we weren't getting the right answer, and he sent Hubble out to do it. And Hubble puts it out. And when I put this article out last week, I actually got um, – there was a bunch of people on Larry King. I can't really say because I, I don't know if he wants this public story public. But they were in a uh, in a interview with um, uh, Larry King, four people. And, and Symington, who was a friend of uh, uh, Clinton, was one of the people that was on Larry King. So they're leaving the studio and they're driving back in the limousine to the hotel – and uh, what I was told this week was that the phone rings, and uh, Fife Symington, who was uh, a good friend of Bill Clinton, was in the car, and he takes the phone call, and it's Clinton, and he's in uh, Europe, and he's phoning from some company, country in Europe, and I guess he'd been watching the Larry King show. And so he, they put him on speakerphone, and Clinton is telling the same story about the fact that he sent Hubble out to get the answer to this kind of stuff, and uh, basically sort of reinforces the, the story that Clinton tried to get to the bottom of it and couldn't get to the couldn't get any answers and and was absolutely furious and had been asked by for example the white house reporter um uh sarah mcclendon she said mr clinton why don't you do something about this ufo stuff these people are making demands why don't you do something about it and according to sarah mcclendon clinton leaned over and he said sarah there's a government inside the government and i don't control it which is basically similar to what Jimmy Carter had told a number of people was that when he got there and he asked for the UFO files, they said, you're only here part-time, four years, eight years. There's a lot of people around here that are here for a long time, and you don't have a need to know. Curiosity on the part of the president is not sufficient need to know. So there's these indications that at least these two presidents were told you're not getting the answer, which is kind of, you know, bad news if you go through this election that they're going to go through and spend billions of dollars next month and uh, the, the people running the country aren't even the people you're going to be electing. Grant Cameron is with us, uh, the website presidentialufo.com. Well, Grant and, and Victor, for all those people who had such high hopes for um, uh, President Obama being the disclosure president, I think, I think we had our disclosure president. It was Bill Clinton. He did what he could do. He failed. And I don't know what more a president could do. Well, yeah, I guess that's part of it, too, because one of the things that I think Grant mentioned earlier was uh, the involvement of John Podesta. And at the time, uh, during the administration of Clinton, he was the chief of staff. And after that, he came forward uh, a lot later. I think it was in 2002, I believe, first at the National Press Club and talked about the need to have the government come forward about what they know about UFOs. Um, and then again, when uh, during the campaign, uh, or I guess, just after the election, uh, that uh, Obama appointed Podesta as his co-chair of the transition team into the White House. And that was interpreted as a move to say, my goodness, uh, Podesta came out and said all this stuff about the government coming forward about UFOs, and you know, inadvertently enough, this man has been appointed the co-chair of the transition team. And that sort of made sense at the time, that it might have been a signal that, uh, that Obama was ready to come out. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. Right, Grant? Yeah, the the problem with it is uh, like Podesta when he made his statement uh, pro UFO statement, Bush was in 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 the government, and it works the same in Canada. I remember James Richardson, who was a member of Parliament. I, I tried to get him to do some ministerial inquiries here. It's the same thing. When his party was in, he wouldn't do anything. When the other party was in, he was in opposition. Then he was quite willing to put in ministerial inquiries. And the same with Podesta. 
when when Bush is in, he can make these pro UFO statements. But when when Obama's in, if he makes a pro UFO statement, he puts Obama on the spot, the same as uh, uh, Biden did when he talked about gay marriage. You, you put the president on the spot, and the president has to answer for you. He has to answer for everybody. So he's been very quiet. But uh, Obama has made some moves that that I think people really don't see. I, I watch it all the time, so I think they're kind of significant. The one was Will Smith when uh, Men in Black was coming out. He goes to the White House with his son, uh, Jaden Smith, and Jaden wants to ask the president about the UFOs. And they're in the Situation Room, and in the middle of the Situation Room, he's about to ask the question, and Obama cuts him off. He said, I know what you want to know. You want to know about the aliens. And he said, I can neither confirm nor deny that ETs exist. But if there, if, if there was a meeting, a top-secret meeting, it would have taken place in this very room. And that was something that I'm sure Obama knew it was going to get out, that people would hear about this and that it would sort of circulate around. The other thing that he did, he went to Roswell, New Mexico, because in a campaign year, Roswell is always a swing state. It isn't this year, but usually it's a swing state, and everybody goes to Roswell or to New Mexico to try to get that state. So he's in, in New Mexico uh, campaigning a, a few months ago, and he makes this joke about little 9- and 10-year-old kids coming to him and asking him about Roswell. It's the most, most asked question by kids at that age. And he tells them, you know, if I told you this, what, what actually happened, I, then I'd have to kill you. And everybody laughs and makes, you know, every, the crowd all laughs. And there's a pause. You can tell it's a pause. It's no longer in the speech, and he ad-libs. And that's when he says, we'll keep our secrets on, on Roswell. And the third thing he does, which I maintain is a disclosure event, is Chase Brandon comes out. And Chase Brandon comes out and says, I found this box at Langley headquarters. He's a 40-year CIA guy, 35 years, and he's still under contract to the CIA. And uh, here's this guy comes out, and I say there's no way that Chase Brandon would walk out and throw the CIA under the, under the UFO bus unless he had the authorization to do it. And he comes out and he says, I saw a box at Langley it had material that confirms that Roswell was for real. He does it on the 65th anniversary of Roswell. He's promoting, supposedly promoting this book. But there's no way I'm saying that he would have come out because he was the second top public affairs person in the CIA to talk on behalf of the CIA outside the director of the CIA. He knows the rules. He knows how it works. He knows what classification is. And he, he knows the position he's putting the CIA in. So when he comes out and says Roswell was real, there was extraterrestrials, there was bodies, and I can't talk about the, the facts of, of what I saw. This is a disclosure event. This is him coming out. And the reason Obama is connected is because the CIA, you, if you listen to Chase Brandon, he always talks about the fact that the CIA, the only thing they do, they, their, their client is the people at 60,000 feet. That's the president, that's the executive, that's the intelligence people for the House and the Senate. Those are the people they're working for. They do not work for themselves. Therefore, if he comes out and makes a disclosure thing, it's green-lighted green by the White House because the same as Podesta talking on behalf of the president, the CIA can't go and say something stupid because the president is going to have to answer for it. Therefore, I would say that the, the, the event with Chase Brandon coming out and talking about this is an event that was set up by the White House. That's my opinion. All right. Grant, uh, stay put. We'll uh, come back and we'll dial it back maybe 40 years, and we'll talk about the Nixon administration and the alien bodies uh, along with Jackie Gleason and how he enters into this picture. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio, back in our Toronto uh, studio. I'm coming to you live from New York, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario 1-866-740-4740 of raising the dead uh, and then uh, a member of a, um, a paranormal group in southwestern Ontario will uh, will present some pretty startling uh, EVPs. Uh, right now, we're discussing uh, aliens and the presidents of the United States with uh, UFO researcher Grant Cameron and uh, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Now, we've been talking about uh, Clinton and uh, and uh, Obama. Let's dial it back 40 years. There is this story. Uh, that uh, it's a legend, or is it? It may be based in some fact. Jackie Gleason, of course, the great comedic actor, the star of The Honeymooners, The Jackie Gleason Show, was a UFO nut. Uh, and the story goes that uh, he asked Richard Nixon about this question. One day, Nixon, I guess, drops by his place in Florida, invites him to accompany him to the Homestead Air Force Base. And uh, Grant Cameron, let me throw it over to you. Fill in the blanks. What happened? Um, well, we should get a little background. Uh, the story first broke in, I think it was 1983, in the National Enquirer. His second wife, uh, Beverly Gleason, had put out a story that Jackie had come home late at night and that he was uh, very shaken up, that he had just seen extraterrestrial bodies. And uh, she puts this story out, and she's trying to promote a book that she's trying to get out. That's why she put the story out. And uh, so we interviewed her later. And uh, we, there was two interviews done by Kenny Young, who's unfortunately since passed away. But he asked her, and he said, you know, is, is, is this true? And she said, yes, it's true. Either he was out with another woman or he was he saw extraterrestrial bodies, but he was greatly shaken by, by what had happened that night. And the story is that um, he had been taken to Homestead Air Force Base, that um, Nixon had appeared in a car by himself late at night, and that he had... Uh, taken Gleason because they used to golf. Gleason lived just south of Miami in Florida and he, uh, off a golf course there. And Nixon's home, his uh, southern White House was in uh, in Florida. And so they were very close, about 20 miles from each other. And so he, they go in the car and they go to Homestead and uh, they're shocked to see Nixon driving. He, he just waves at the guard. He goes through. And uh, according to Gleason, they go into, the, into a building and he shows them these... Uh, dead extraterrestrial bodies and of course when i first put the story out i was sort of attacked by a bunch of people saying well you know this is not possible so what i was able to confirm was number one that um every time that nixon went south to florida uh he would land at homestead air force base and they would take army one or army two the helicopter to his home they would go by helicopter from there so he he had been at homestead i don't know how many times 50 60 times he knew homestead like the back of his hand because he landed there every time 
The other thing people said was the president can't escape his Secret Service. And so I was able to recover a story where it showed that Nixon didn't like his Secret Service and that he had actually gotten out in Washington. He had used one of the cooks from the kitchen. Nixon had gotten in the back seat under a blanket, and the, the cook had driven out and taken Nixon out, and he suddenly disappeared, and they got him in some bar in Washington, and the Secret Service had to, had to recover him. So it sort of proved the fact that this story could happen, that the president actually could sort of escape his Secret Service pick up Gleason, and there was a number of people after that um, sort of have confirmed the story, have have said that they either talked to Gleason uh, or have uh, talked to somebody who talked to Gleason. So there are a number of people who seem to back up the story that this actually did take place, that Gleason did uh, at least tell the story that this, that this had happened. What do you make of that, Victor? Well, yeah, it's uh, there's just so much uh, apparent mythology attached to this. And it's any wonder why Grant was, uh, you know, criticized for it initially. But if you take a look at all the evidence and the way uh, Nixon operated, um, and also, too, the, the fact of the matter that uh, Jackie Gleason did have one of the largest UFO libraries, um, I guess, uh, uh, for any entertainer to have, and he bequeathed it, I believe, to one of the universities um, in, in the United States. Um, so he was very, very interested in this. Now, the thing that really surprises me is, is I guess, trying to match this up with the, the president's right to know or, the, or curiosity on the part of the president really wasn't sufficient evidence uh, or at least sufficient reason for the president to know about the UFO issue. Uh, how, Grant, how do you think uh, Nixon got a hold of this stuff uh, through that kind of veil of protection that this issue had well, at the time? Well, it comes down to the old story that um, the, the Republicans seem to know and the Democrats don't. Um, I put out the other story this week about, uh, about uh, Ronald Reagan, the story that Ronald Reagan told. I mean, he was another Republican. And uh, there, there's other stories that show that Nixon knew. There's the, the story of the UFOs past, present, and future documentary that was done in 1975 where two guys were given complete access to everybody, just were allowed to go on bases, go into the Pentagon without, without signing in. And uh, the guy that was one of the guys that was the producers that was working for, for Nixon, knew Haldeman, knew uh, his communications guy, uh, had a CIA guy in the, on the, the, the studio when they were doing this whole thing. And so it gave indication that Nixon knew what was going on, that he had the inside track. And the story. Okay, let's was, uh, let's uh, take a time out, uh, uh, Grant. When okay. we come back, uh, I'd like to hear some of those uh, stories uh, about uh, Reagan and yeah. uh, the UFO issue. The Conspiracy Show, live from New York and Toronto. Grant Cameron, PresidentialUFO.com, and Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zealand News Network. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Uh, Grant, uh, Ronald Reagan... Um I believe at least on two occasions, maybe three, uh, he, he talked about the possibility of an alien invasion 
Um, what can you tell us about about Reagan's fascination with with UFOs? Um, well, this is a story I just put on my website this week. Um, had the alien invasion remark was five or six times, and uh, he was fascinated five or six. with five or six times. Yeah, and uh, and it's on my website. Those are recorded. But anyway, the the, re- the reason that he was so fascinated with this was he was fascinated with with nuclear weapons and UFOs, and it uh, ties into the 1951 movie, The Earth, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Till, Still, which was apparently one of his fa- his favorite movies about the threat of nuclear weapons and the fact that the aliens would uh, could wipe us out if we didn't uh, smarten up. But the, the, the significant part is the his, his sightings. I always thought there were two sightings, one in an airplane, which he talked about with the Wall Street Journal, and then when I suddenly realized he was talking to a reporter, backed off the story. The other one was a story that he told to uh, a group of people. He was coming to a party in Los Angeles, and this story's on my website right now. And when he gets there, uh, Steve Allen, who's a comedian, told the story that, that he remembers Reagan talking about this when he got there. And the other one uh, is Lucille Ball, who stated that she had um, heard the story. Now, the, the addition to the story is now Shirley MacLaine has gotten involved, and this is in her book, uh, Saging While Aging, which was put out in 2007, which became famous for outing uh, Dennis Kucinich and his close encounter with a UFO. Uh, but in this one, she states that Reagan actually uh, had had an encounter with an alien, that there, it was an actual contact. It wasn't just a sighting. And so she just did an interview in uh, the U.K. in the last month, and I checked uh, with uh, people that know her, and uh, they referred me to the book and said it's in the book. And basically, in, according to the what she told a newspaper in England, uh, the alien came out of the ship, and there was a, a te- telepathic interaction between Reagan and the alien, and the alien told him to get out of, out of movies and get into politics. And uh, so he gets into politics, and he's absolutely fascinated with the, the UFO subject. And there's the famous story about uh, closing, uh, E.T., the, ex- the extraterrestrial, screened in June of 1982 by Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg tells this story on the Internet. It was on my website for a number of years, and then Steven Spielberg confirmed it that at the end of E.T., the extraterrestrial, Reagan stood up in front of about 40 people, and I, on the, in the article I have all those people named, uh, you know, people on the Supreme Court, two astronauts, a bunch of high-ranking people, former CIA directors and stuff like that, and he says, uh, uh, thank you, Stephen, for bringing the movie. We enjoyed it, and there's, uh, there's a number of people in this room know that everything on that screen is absolutely true. So there you have basically a president standing up and confirming the fact that this is all for real, and uh, the story didn't go anywhere. All these people heard this, him state this, and it just went down into rumor, and I got a hold of the rumor, and then Steven Spielberg was asked about it and finally confirmed the story was true, and still the, the media didn't pick up on it. So that's that one. And maybe I can maybe tell you a quick story, because it ties into Tesla, because you are doing your Tesla thing, and yes. this is a story that's just broken, and this has to do with Eisenhower. Um, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, a review now, and Eisenhower is sort of the contactee president. You had Reagan, who was a contactee, but you have uh, there's a whole pile of stories about Eisenhower having met with aliens. He's the only president that has all these stories about him. And there's a new one that's just broken uh, now, and the guy's name is Gordon Duff. And I can't get into the whole story. You probably get him on your show. He'll tell you the whole thing. He is um, the chairman of the board of what's called Veterans Today. It's a, a website, 
it seems to be a big operation. He has a bunch of high-ranking people, intelligence people. He claims this is where the black ops people hang out. And he's got a lot of uh, uh, various uh, people telling him stories. And in, a, in the last week or two, he's been doing a bunch of interviews about um, an uh, MJ-12 document he saw in 1977 and about uh, a possible uh, operation with the U.S. and the Chinese to try to fight off aliens off in the Pacific, off of San Francisco. So these are the two stories that he started. But he talks about uh, Tesla technology that has been developed by the U.S. military. And uh, it's too hard to get into because he talks about this kind of technology. The story that he's, he's sort of added to what interests me is the Eisenhower one where he says in 1970, he saw this in 1982. Uh, he was on a reading group, and he saw this document, 11 pages, an MJ-12 type document which talked about an in, uh, a deal that Eisenhower made in 1953 with a bunch of bad type aliens uh, where they could take not abduct but take 230,000 people a year and so he's added this one so that's 1953 and Eisenhower there's also the story of 1954 with him at Edwards Air Force Base meeting aliens there's a story at uh, Holloman Air Force Base 1955 where he meets with the aliens there's a story uh, 1957 where the aliens are actually brought into the into the White House. Uh, there's 1952, where he's on the USS Roosevelt, where there's a, 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 a UFO encounter, and uh, we find out later that they have nuclear weapons on the ship. Uh, so here's Eisenhower, where he has maybe four or five, four or five contacts with, directly with aliens, and every other president, there's really none. Reagan has one. There's uh, um, one with Kennedy. And that's basically it. So you have Eisenhower with all these contacts, which seems to indicate there may be some truth to these stories, that there was some sort of interaction between Eisenhower and visiting groups of aliens who wanted us to stop nuclear technology or make deals or whatever. I'm still working on that, but it's kind of an interesting thing. If you get this Gordon, he's actually a very interesting-sounding guy uh, who has a lot of claims of high-ranking contacts and who's now telling these uh stories about Tesla technology, and he goes into some details about what the Americans have actually developed. Well, I, I, I'd heard about the the uh, alleged meeting between Eisenhower and the aliens at Edward Air, Edwards Air Force Base in 54. I had no idea there were five or six such incidents. Uh, Victor, over to you. Yeah, what I'd like to explore just for a second, uh, Grant, if you could. Uh, today I was attempting to locate some information from the uh, Archdiocese of uh, Los Angeles regarding uh, Cardinal McIntyre, Francis McIntyre, and his association with the president. And my understanding is that all the archives are, are being uh, sort of shut down as far as the Archdiocese is concerned. They just won't release anything to, research, to, uh, to researchers. Uh, my question to you would be, would the um, Eisenhower archive uh, be able to be probed um, or requested to release any of the documents they may have in terms of correspondence that the president might have had with McIntyre in order to get him to come uh, to the Air Force Base that time to accompany him? Uh, that I went through, I spent a week at the Eisenhower Library going through the whole story and uh, all the, I'm not sure whether I looked up that, but that's very easy if you just contact the Eisenhower Library and it's called an alpha, alpha search, like those four people that were supposedly with Eisenhower you can just do an alpha search for each one. You say, I want all the uh, correspondence, phone calls, uh, and meetings between the president and whatever person. And they'll do what's called an alpha search. It takes, it's very fast. 
and they'll get back to you with whatever correspondence there was. I went through all the material, like the thank you letters, like this the story about the dentist mm-hmm. tracking, you know, the dentist and whether there was a thank you and there was no thank you to the dentist and stuff. And I spent a lot of time tracking. And there is no doubt in '54, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, that the president disappeared, uh, because the press picked up on it. And there was one news reporter from New York who was actually about to go on the wire with the story that the president had died of a heart attack. And the press secretary had to come back from a barbecue on the other side of Palm Springs and calm the media down. We don't know how they figured it out, but they actually had to calm the media down and say the president's okay, nothing's happened. And uh, then he appears the next morning at, at church, and the media just sort of gives up and forgets about it. But that one for sure. Some of the other stories are kind of goofy, and they have some problems with it. It's just kind of weird that you have so many stories about contacts with the one president and no other president. You figure people are making up stories, they should make them up about all the presidents. They don't. It's just Eisenhower. Uh, now, we should point out that the you mentioned the dentist in a thank you note. That was sort of, I guess, the cover story, that the reason for Eisenhower's sudden disappearance was he had to be rushed. Uh, uh, he had a, an emer- a dental emergency. Yeah, he broke a crown eating uh, fried chicken at supper time. So they had to take him to the dentist. And Bill Moore actually interviewed the dentist's wife years later. Bill Moore was a researcher in the 80s. He actually interviewed the, the dentist's wife, and she said, as far as she's concerned, it didn't happen. If her husband had worked on the president's tooth, she would have known about it, and uh, she had never heard anything about that. So uh, the story sort of fell apart, this, this cover story as to uh, why he disappeared. And then there was the other cover story about he appears at church the next morning, and his secretary had, had talked about that. She said that, Eisenhower was actually a Jehovah Witness who had changed over to uh, uh, Protestant after he was elected, but he hated church. He hated to go to church, and his 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 main secretary was with him the whole time. In an oral interview, it said, "You know, I don't I don't know how him and uh, and Billy Graham ever got together, got along together." And so here, him the next morning, he appears at church, all smiling and happy, whatever. But he was a guy who didn't like church and. Uh, had been gone since uh, I think it was about 10 o'clock at night when this sort of emergency took place with the where the press secretary had to come run back and and calm the press down. And how long was he uh, had he been gone for? I mean, how long was this disappearance? Well, it was from well, we know we know at 10 o'clock that the the press knew something was wrong, and it was kind of weird because he was in a compound. I don't know how they would know he was supposed to be with some guy playing bridge with a family in a compound, so they didn't have any direct access to him. And for some reason, they knew he was gone. The, the one in 55 at, at Holloman, he disappears for three days. And uh, he's, they claim he's got a cold. And uh, he, the, the evidence there seems to indicate. But the problem with these records back in those days was it's not like today. If you see a presidential record today, every single minute he moves here, he's going there, he's, he picks up the phone every, every minute. There you have whole gaps where the president is on holidays. They just have holidays, holidays, holidays for three or four days. They really don't record the events of the president like they do today. So you never know. But the, the 55, he was gone for three days, according to the evidence. This one, it was only uh, maybe 12 hours, something like that. But then, of course, he was he was at Palm Springs, and Edwards is only about uh, 90 miles away. So it, it's not going to take him long to get there. We just got about a minute, uh, Grant, but you alluded to uh, Jack Kennedy and UFOs. What's the story there? I don't think he really. Uh, I don't think he really had as much interest. He actually said, if you go to his web to the presidential website, you'll actually hear an audio clip where he says, "I'm not interested in space." 
I just want to beat the Russians to the moon. He, he couldn't care less about space. John, Robert Kennedy, his brother, was very interested. Uh, Kennedy didn't even serve an entire administration. I don't believe he was assassinated because of UFOs. He had lots of enemies. He, lots of people wanted to get rid of him. I don't think there was any connection there. The key for the Kennedy administration is uh, a guy by the name of Arthur Lundahl, who is the guy who briefed the president on flying saucers. He's the key guy to watch, but it's kind of a long story. He's uh, one of the top CIA guys that ever existed. Fascinated with UFOs, ran the National Photographic Interpretation Center where they analyzed all the U-2, all the SR-71. He did all the, the photographic analysis for the Robertson panel. Uh, he was a photographic expert, and he was the, the UFO guy that was sort of advising uh, the president. Grant, uh, every time you come on, you're full value. You just drop some amazing information bombs, and uh, you are a, a national treasure. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Grant Cameron, presidentialufo.com. Uh, Victor Vigiani, hey, thanks for uh, for riding shotgun with me tonight back in my Toronto studio. Well, as usual, we've unwrapped several really interesting packages for our listeners, and I hope that they can uh, delve into some of the aspects of uh, what they've heard tonight because it has indeed been a, a bombshell evening. All right, and uh, Victor, Executive Director of Zealand News Network, and uh, if you click on uh, Zealand on tonight's homepage, that'll take you to his, uh, his website. That's zealandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Victor, always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Good night now. Good night. All right, back next week. Freddie Silva, Egyptians and the Art of Raising the Dead. You'll want to be around for that one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.